Jim Shoemaker, Jason Harrington, and Scott Jordan are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, your host, Jim Shoemaker. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern is always money. Welcome to today's program. We have one of those programs that I know you've got questions because we've been receiving the questions because you know that we have Kurt Zarnowski on. And he's going to, of course, always talk about Social Security. He's the expert. We're going to dive in and get some of those questions answered today. Just remind you, if you do have a question, you can send them to Jim, J-I-M, 901-683-0989, or you can send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. If you missed any part of today's show, you can listen to it again. Just go to Talk Money on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. Subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you so much that you're a part of today's program. I don't want to delay, but I have to tell you the second half of the program. We've got both Scott Jordan and Jason Harrington, and we're going to answer questions that you've asked about the fundamentals that we all need to know at this particular time and the basics of investing. But the questions we're going to be asking is, what questions should I ask in the selection process of finding a good financial professional. Those are tremendous questions. You've asked them. We want to try to do our best to get answers that you can understand, and that's always important. And you're talking about edification and education. This guest is best at it. My guest today is Kurt Zarnowski, president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting, and he always does a great job talking about Social Security. Welcome to the program, my friend. Hey, Jim. Good to be back with you. Hope you're doing well and hope everybody listening is doing well as well. Well, I think we're trying our best to get through the beginning of summer. And that's, uh, you know, again, down here where you are, it's not as bad. Down here, it can get brutal. We all are thinking and talking about last year being a heat wave and a drought. We are praying that that's not going to be a repeat in 2023. But here's sure. the question that everybody's asking. And, and Kurt, you know, it's, I hate this because we seem to start with this every time. But when Social Security, Medicare, and, and Medicaid, and all of that makes up approximately, I mean, literally 65% of our budget, with the headlines day in and day out about this deficit that we've got to, you know, work through, and now we know that we're in that process, maybe going to hit our deadline. But what are your, what's your take and what's your thoughts is Social Security, the question, is Social Security in trouble, maybe not this particular budget discussion, but in a future budget discussion? Sure, Jim. And, you know, every time you ask me the question, I preface my remarks by saying, I would like to quote the great Yogi Berra, who always said, I'm very reluctant to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> And when I answer this question, I also like to quote Mark Twain, who once said, reports of my demise are greatly exaggerated. And I think that's absolutely the case here with Social Security. Reports of Social Security's demise are greatly exaggerated. Here are the facts. Each year, the Social Security Board of Trustees issues a report on the financial health of the system. And in that report, they attempt to lay out not just the current status, but then project 75 years in the future. The 2023 report came out on March 31st of this year. And in that report, 
Trustees project that as currently constituted, assuming no changes to the program whatsoever, no increase in taxes, no cuts in benefits, Social Security is projected to be able to pay 100% of promised benefits each and every month between now and the end of the year 2034. And beginning in 2035, though, the report goes on to say, Social Security at that point will still have a revenue stream from payroll taxes collected from employers, employees, and people who are self-employed that's projected to be enough to cover about 80% of the benefits that have been promised. So I think for listeners, it's important to put some context in this. And remember that because Social Security's primary source of income are payroll tax dollars, as long as the economy is functioning in some form or fashion, Social Security will always have a revenue stream of some sort going forward. The question is, looking down the road, is that revenue stream thought to be enough to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised? And the latest report says beginning in the year 2035, they won't be, but they are thought to be enough to cover about 80%. So the issue confronting Congress and the American public on the future of the Social Security program is not how they close a 100% funding gap by tomorrow. No, it's how over the course of the next 10, 11 years or so, they come up with some changes to the program that close this 20% funding gap. And with Social Security, if you think about it, it's money coming in, it's money going out. And so the situation is not altogether different from somebody's situation at home. If at the end of the month you don't have enough money to pay all your bills, either got to bring more money in or pay a little bit less money out. And that's basically the situation with Social Security. Now, if you close that funding gap simply by bringing more money in, well, who are going to be impacting? Well, younger folks, employers, you close the gap simply by cutting benefits or sending less money out, who are you going to be impacting? Well, old folks like myself. So I think at the end of the day, when Congress gets around to dealing with the issue, you're going to see a mixture, a blend of some reasonable income increases and some reasonable slowdowns on the outflow side so that no one will feel that they've been singled out for disparate treatment. And, you know, in many ways, Jim, Social Security's big problem is it doesn't face an immediate crisis. It faces some challenges, largely demographically driven, but if the current budget deficit boondog or a fiasco has showed us anything. It's a Congress doesn't do anything until it really reaches crisis stage. And so would be best for everyone if Congress took a longer range view, dealt with the issue now, allowed younger workers in particular to understand the changes that were coming and plan for those. But unfortunately, Congress tends to lurch from crisis to crisis. So I don't hold out a lot of hope that we're going to see any type of immediate resolution to the issue. But I always like to put some context in it. You're talking about not an immediate danger of payments not going out. It's down the road, again, because of demographics, largely the retirement of the baby boom generation, coupled with the fact that people are living longer, coupled with the fact that people aren't having as many kids as they once did, means that the program faces some challenges. And as I said, the sooner Congress were to deal with the issue, the better off everyone would be, but I hold out no hope for any type of immediate resolution. When you talk about an immediate resolution, I agree with you 100%. I think we do have a tendency to deal only with the crisis or the urgent instead of long-range planning. And again, let's talk about that person who's now 20, it's 2035, and 
you know, let's say, uh, you know, they've been planning. Or should should we say to them that we're planners, we're advisors? Should we say to them at this point that you are only going to expect eighty percent of what's projected for you at this point? Is that, or is, do you think that eventually Social Security will begin to project that number themselves, saying? At this point, just because we know 80% is coming in, I mean, you follow me what I'm asking? I mean, it's Absolutely, ho- and I get that question all the time from planners. And, and I think in terms of making projections, particularly for younger folks, I think it's um, not correct to assume that there won't be anything there for Social Security. It's too important a program, been around for nearly 88 years now, you know, provides benefits to nearly 66 million people to the tune of $111 billion per month is not going to go away. So I think it's incorrect to assume there's not going to be any income from Social Security. But at the same time, because as I just mentioned, there needs to be some changes made. And so I think it's equally unwise maybe to assume, particularly for younger folks, that the benefit levels are going to be the same as shown in somebody's current statement. So for planning purposes, you know, I think a reasonable approach is to say, okay, worst thing happens and they don't deal with the issue. You know, you're still projected to get 80% of what the benefit shows up on your statement. So that's, I think, a reasonable number to use for planning purposes right now. And as the circumstances change, adjust that going forward. And I firmly believe Congress will eventually deal with the issue. But I think with particularly with younger folks, they're going to need to be some changes to the program. And so you recognize that there are going to be changes and you uh, deal with them uh, when they're legislated. But I think, uh, you know, these days, you know, plan on 80 percent. That's the worst case scenario. But I think it's uh, inappropriate to think there won't be anything there. And particularly for younger folks, I think it's inappropriate to think that. Uh, there won't be some changes that might impact what's going to be paid. Well, if you just joined us, as you recognize the voice, Kurt Zarnowski, the president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting, a frequent guest of ours, giving us our update on what's going on with Social Security. And, of course, we're talking about that if you happen to be receiving benefits at 2035, yeah, you might want to think about an 80% amount instead of the current 100%. But that's... um, uh, you know, without any adjustments. And, and, and Kurt, I, I think what you talk about this, I think what I'm hearing, and let me say this, when you think about, I mean, I asked somebody asked me the other day, well, what's the cost of administrating? Well, the cost of administrating Social Security is, is peanuts when you compare to the amount was being paid. It's like less than 1%, if I, I think I'm correct on that. You're correct. It's 0.6%. It's uh, talk costs about $6.7 billion to run the program, but that's less than uh, 1% of uh, total expenditures. You can't really say, well, we're, we're paying way too much to the people administrating it because we're really not. It's a very well-run program. Yep. Now, you can we can throw some things in there, but the reality is Social Security for what we're doing from a cost of running the program is not the, the, the cost. It's not the problem. You know right. what I'm saying? So, and I think, Jim, it's also important to... Uh, remind listeners that the Social Security program in place in 2023 is not identical to the Social Security program that was legislated back in 1935. Through its 88-year history, the program has had changes that are part and parcel of its nature. You know, before the first regular retirement payment was made, survivor benefits were added, disability benefits were added. 
student benefits were cut. I mean, there have been changes all along, and historically, as those changes have been legislated, they have been made prospective on the part of Congress to allow people to plan accordingly. You know, we've talked in the past about how Social Security full retirement age has been increasing over the course of the past 20 years or so. That change was legislated in 1983, part of a comprehensive package of Social Security amendments. Well, that change in full retirement age legislated in 83 didn't go into effect until the year 2000. So there have been generally prospective changes. Congress has recognized that for many people who are collecting, you know, it would be inappropriate, akin to cruel and unusual punishment to pull a rug out from under them and, and, and change the benefits. So again, most of these are done prospectively. There's been changes throughout the history of the program. It's unrealistic to think there won't be changes going forward. And again, as I keep harping, the sooner Congress decides on what those changes will be, the more opportunity people will have to adjust and to plan for whatever their changes are going to be. Kurt, but it's never going to go away. I, never going to go away. It's never going to go away. I guess that's reassuring to everybody listening. For our listeners, that, that when you say changes, can you give us, I mean, I know this is speculative on your part, and yet you've got the experience, oh, sure. you've been around. What are some of those, just two or three, that you can say, sure. these are real changes that, that Congress understands and would do? What would you see as changes? Sure. So one of the things right now, if you're an employee working in a job covered under Social Security, you pay a 6.2% Social Security payroll tax on a maximum level of earnings each year. This year, you pay that on the first $160,200 that you make. Now, that's 6.2% matched by your employer, and folks who are self-employed have the, air quotes here, privilege of paying the combined employer-employee rate. Now, what has changed each year is that taxable maximum, but what hasn't changed since 1991 is that 6.2% Social Security payroll tax rate. So a change that would generate additional income for the system, closing that gap a little bit, would be to increase the tax rate. Now, you don't have to increase it to 10% or 20%. No, you could nudge it up a tenth of a percent or two tenths of a percent. That's one way you could generate some more income for the program. On the outflow side, well, we've already talked about full retirement age having been increased. Well, as we talked about on the program, Jim, life expectancy is increasing. So maybe you recognize increase in life expectancy by maybe having additional increases to Social Security full retirement age. And that would slow down the payment of benefits. So there's a number of things that are out there both on the income side and on the outflow side um, that could help. Uh, and as, as I said, I don't think the gap will be closed solely on the income side, slowly on the outflow side, but you'll see a mix, a blend. And on the Social Security website, the Office of the Actuary has put together a lot of information and scored, if you will, uh, the impact of those changes on how much of an impact they'd have on, on closing that, you know, roughly 20% funding gap. So, uh, socialsecurity.gov slash and then in all capital letters O-A-C-T um, you can get a lot of inf 
Hey, Jim, you know you know what an actuary is, don't you? <laughs> I'm waiting. <laughs> an actuary is somebody who doesn't have enough personality to be an accountant. But I'm bummed. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, lots of information there. You know, it's important for people to have an understanding of, of what's going on and then let their elected leaders know what their preferences are. But again, as I started the, the presentation, I'm reluctant to make predictions about the future, but I think you will at some point see Congress Deal with the issue, close that 20%, not 100% funding gap, by generating some additional income, maybe slowing down the outflow of benefits, so that Social Security will continue to pay 100% of promised benefits, just as it always has, and it started making that first recurring monthly payment to uh, folks back in the, in the 1940s. You know, Kurt, in the remaining time, I've got one question for you. Is this a, is this a hot Top topic. I mean, just I know it's hot. I know it's a, I know it's a topic. That's why we are asking it. Is this a political basketball that's tossed back and forth? And I mean, I, I feel like sometimes that we 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 say this or say that only f- to get everybody a rise out of everybody of uh, their attention. But are at the end of the day, Congress got to work together to solve this. I mean, this is not a this is not a bipartisan. Well, this is not a partisan thing. This is not, you know, right or left. I'm, not, I'm trying to keep the politics right. out of it, but the reality is right. sometimes it is. What's your take on that side? Is it, can they come together? Will they come together to make this happen? Well, sure, I think they can and they probably will. But here's the issue, Jim, as I keep saying, there's no immediate crisis. And so to close that funding gap, whether you're going to increase income or slow down benefits, there's no magic silver bullet solution. Huh. So whatever Congress comes up with is going to torque at least some people off in some form or fashion. So because there's no immediate crisis, Congress is very happy to, the old expression, kick the can down the road and you know let somebody else deal with it. Now, at some point, they do need to deal with it. And I keep harping, the sooner they did, the better off we'd all be. And it will need to be a bipartisan solution. But the fact that there's no immediate crisis, the fact that Benefit payments won't go out next month or, or the month after or things like that does make it very easy for Congress to, to defer action and uh, leave it to somebody else to deal with. What well, we need, have to have is part in, in Congress is comity on the part, and that's comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not C-O-M-E-D-Y. <laughs> we have plenty of that already in Congress. All right. But, but I think it'll, it'll be dealt with eventually. Um, but and the sooner the better. Well, you've talked about two changes. The inflow, obviously, just simply raise the payroll tax. Just if you only did it 10 basis points, I mean, one-tenth of a percent, that's an amount of money coming in that would be an inflow, an influx of capital in order to sustain our payment. Or from an outflow standpoint, you mentioned the fact that just simply raise the full retirement age as we've done in the past. So, you know what? I think it's always great to have you on. You you bring it to the table for us. You always clarify things. The question, I think people listening today can say, okay, I heard Kurt say, the reality is we will continue to kick the can, but the reality is there's a crisis and we will fix the crisis when it comes about. We've done it in the past. And again, those two simple inflow, the inflow idea and the outflow idea, Gives us great comfort, and Kurt, you do that. Thank you so much, sir, and appreciate you being a part of today's program. Always a treat, Jim. Take care. Happy summer. Hope the weather uh, cooperates for you down there. Oh, we're going to try our best, man. It's always great to talk with you. We'll have you back on. You know that in a couple of weeks. We'll do it again. Thank you, sir. You got it. All right. Kurt Zarnowski. 
president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting. You know, Scott, Jason, you guys were listening. I mean, inflow, you're talking about literally raising payroll tax. Just even he did it 10 basis points. It's a great thought to do that. When we come back, I want to kind of talk about that. What you think? Well, I think the important thing that he said is there are fixes. And I think that, like he said, it's not a crisis today. But when, when our back's against the wall, we will come up with a solution to fix the Social Security problem. Yeah. And, and Scott, I heard him say also that, you know, this is perspective that we're not trying to fix a problem to go from zero to a hundred. Right. Uh, we're trying to cover us. You know, the, the government is trying to figure out how to close a small funding gap uh, that seems to have some pretty reasonable and easy solutions. To reasonable it. and easy solutions. You know, I failed to ask him about Medicare because, again, that's part of the program and part of the problem. That's a bigger problem. Uh, I, say, and I just run out of time. One. We always do that. So if you just tune in, my guest coming back when we take a break is going to be Scott Jordan and Jason Harrington. We're going to talk about some fundamentals of investing and answer your questions about what do you ask, what kind of questions do you ask when you're trying to select a great financial professional, somebody who really can have your best interests in heart. You would think these are easy questions. So many people struggle and asking questions to this type of person. So we're going to come back with that. That's a great type of program. Stay with us. I want to remind you, if you want to get questions, send them to Jim, J-I-M, 901-683-0989. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or recommendation. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Separate from the financial plan and our role as financial planner, we may recommend the purchase of specific investment or insurance products or accounts. These product recommendations are not part of the financial plan and you are under no obligation to follow them. Helping you make the most of your money. Talk money with Jim Shoemaker on News Talk 98.9. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securian Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securian Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, your host, Jim Shoemaker. Welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. I want to remind you that you can find our show if you've missed any part of it today. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. And just thank you so much for listening. My guest, as we've been talking, is Scott Jordan and Jason Harrington. And we're going to talk about, in just a few seconds here, about literally how do you go through that process of selecting a financial professional. But, you know, guys, I really appreciated the fact that Kurt carried us through Social Security. I felt comfortable as he gives us the two options that Congress has, the inflow and the outflow. And I think, you know, what you touched on, the political aspect of it, you know, it's a political hot potato. You can't even bring up the oh, subject no. without raising people's blood pressure. That's so right. it's 
it's one of those things that I think we're going to have to get down to the wire and, and get down to a situation where real people realize that the crisis is actually coming to when they'll sit down and come up with a solution. But there are solutions. Yeah, and, and I think the gap can be filled, and I think there are, and there are good solutions. understanding that they're yeah. good solutions. You know, I forgot to ask him about Medicare. I said that earlier, but I, I really... Because we just run out of time, uh, you know, with everything else we've got to go because we want to answer your questions. And obviously, one of your questions is, how do you go through the process? Somebody sent that in. I felt, I think it's Thomas, but i be honest with you, we had so many things come in. We, we actually, you know, promoted the idea of, for peace of mind, the, the selection process. And we did that. And so many people requested that. And Thomas, in another email sent to me, simply said, you know, would you help me understand the questions I should ask? So we'll have Kurt back to talk about Medicare, but let's turn the page and let's dive into questions. And Thomas, I hope you're listening. This gives you a pretty good insight into it. And I'll start with you, Jason. If you're, if you're looking to help and find a, a professional, the questions you need to ask are questions that are very clear and the things that you want to know. Start with me. There's several, and we'll go through this process for Thomas, but what are your questions that you would be looking for? Let's just start with number one. I think one of the things you got to ask yourself first is what type of engagement do you want to have with a financial advisor? Uh, There's a couple of ways that you can help determine that. You can simply ask your prospective advisor is, you know, how are they compensated for doing work for you? Um, and there's a couple of ways that an advisor is going to work. They'll work in a fee relationship or they'll work uh, based off of a commission. One might coin that question a little differently. Do you engage, do you want to engage with your financial advisor from a planning perspective, a relationship perspective, or do you want this to be more transactional, come in and do the things that I need to do kind of on an ad hoc basis? Or do I want this to be uh, built into a full comprehensive planning scenario? So that's the first thing I would ask would be, uh, would ask myself, how do I want to engage with a financial planner? And then ask that advisor, what, how does he work? with his clients. Are you saying then that it just simply going up front and asking right off the you know, front, the, the question, are you commission-based or are you fee-based? Right. That if, sounds like a very tough, I mean, I can't imagine walking in, you don't know this guy and asking a question, how you get paid? Well, I can tell you, being a financial advisor for the last 20 something years, an advisor that can't answer that question, <laughs> you just need to, you need to, that one is not one you would want to go That's not a hard with. question. That's not a hard question it's for people being who honest. are honest. By yes. the way, you're not, nobody, I hope nobody's hearing this thinking we're trying to say one's better than the other. It's just a different It's mindset. just a different pr- approach to how an advisor might interact and engage with their clients. And again, some people have preferences one way, or an, one way or another. But yes, that seems like it may be an awkward or uncomfortable question to ask from a client's perspective, but not at all an uncomfortable question for us as advisors to answer. And there should be some transparency and some comfort level when an advisor is answering that question to know this is how we conduct ourselves. All right. Advisors. That's a very straightforward question. Scott, you talk about this and I know, and I know it's kind of, you know, Jason mentioning transparency Transparency in our business, we feel like, is absolutely critical. I mean, the client should never think we've got to do this in order to do, or we're going to get paid extra for this or something like that. So when you talk about transparency, the question, I guess, is the standard 
What right. asking them? Right. What do you mean by standard? What standard does a person work? Well, there are two kind of broad standards in in our industry that people operate under, and that is either a fiduciary, and we'll talk about that a little more deeply, or suitability standard. And it kind of goes back to what Jason was talking about, that fee-based versus commission in a lot of ways. But a fiduciary, that is somebody who is legally bound to always be acting in your best interest, not not just today, but throughout the whole relationship. So that is a standard that, um, and, and I will say that legislation recently with some of the Reg BI stuff and things of that nature have brought those two a little closer together. But Suitability is a little different. Suitability is is typically what you see more in a transaction-oriented relationship, and that is just making sure that whatever product and service you're offering to the client is suitable to them at that particular time, not quite rising up to that level of a fiduciary. So I think it's important to ask your financial professional, and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to do business, and I'm not saying there's a there's a better or worse way. You know, trust is built through somebody who you feel comfortable with, and, and whatever standard they operate under is not necessarily the de- deciding factor, but I think you need to understand the, the standard that they're operating under because that can have an effect on the type of advice that they give you. So fee-based and then suitability, mm-hmm. Reg BI you mentioned, that's kind of brought the two. That's that the suitability yeah. side is a little bit more transparent than, say, before many before Reg BI. Right, and, and that's just – and I think that's the du- direction that the industry is heading is toward kind of that fiduciary standard for everybody. But right now it's up to the – you know, the suitability is still falling under a Reg BI. And they're, they're closer but not exactly the same. And, and again, I think it boils down to – you know, where is the advice they given, they're given me, it, where is that coming from? Is it is it with my best interest in mind or possibly with their best interest in mind? And what I just is, think you need to understand a little bit about how your advisor operates. Great, great point. And I guess I guess this is the questions. And I understand why Thomas wanted the question answered because I feel like, I mean, you've just, Jason, opened up the door, you know, commissions or, or fees. And then you're talking about fiduciary versus suitability. Can you work where you're under a combination of the two? I mean, yes. is that where is that right, wrong, or what? I mean, let's start with oh, that. I, I think my personal opinion is that I think that's a great relationship to have with someone because in many times in a fee-based relationship, uh, the advisor does have a fiduciary responsibility to give the best advice uh, at, for the client. Um, one of the things that we tend to see from time to time in those relationships is that then it becomes the client's responsibility to go out and, you know, kind find, of figure out how to a, execute yeah. this on their okay. own. Uh, and just in the world of of the Internet and information and there's products changing constantly, that can be also a daunting task. So many people will look for relationships where you will operate in my best interest as a client, both on the recommendation side, but also in helping me find the right products to strategically place in my plan to help me get where I'm going. To implement the plan. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's why I said there's no right or wrong answer because depending on where somebody is in, in their, you know, asset accumulation, if you will, or, or, or how much they can afford to pay in a fee, maybe 
it may be better that they're in a commission-based relationship based on where they are at their stage in life. Okay, guys, you, you mentioned this earlier. Jason, I think it was you that said if the, if the advisor doesn't answer the question, move on to the next one. But is they, are these questions, I think, the, see, for the client coming in and, and setting that, are these intimidating questions? I mean, because the client doesn't want to intimidate their advisor. Sure. I mean, they're trying to see, can I work with this guy? Um, they were recommended by somebody or they maybe heard this guy speak or Leal speak or something. And all of a sudden they're saying, I need somebody that will help me. But is this a, we're not intimidating. Not somebody. at all. Not at all. In fact, I love when these questions happen in, in our office. Uh, someone's done their homework. They're, they're engaged. They're interested. They're committed to their financial well-being. That's a great, a, a great testimony of you to your advisor and it helps an advisor understand what your expectations are of them. Uh, you know, you have an expectation of them to understand and know these things. Uh, I think questions from a client are great. They really help uh, open up to, uh, for the advisor to understand what that person's thinking. So about being transparent on. should be absolutely the standard. Really, absolutely. we're talking about just simply opening up and saying, this is how I get paid. This is what I do. Uh, you know, and, and again, I guess what we're saying, guys, is you want to see find somebody that you're working with that is comfortable in that skin of mindset of transparency and someone who is not move on to somebody else. And, and I think as an advisor, it's understanding that that is a question that's on their mind sure when they sit down. When we sit down to do what we call discovery with a client to try to figure out, hey, hey is is there some things we can do to help? You know that question. It's, it's rarely the first question that's asked, <laughs> but you know it's down there. So I usually try to put them at ease with talking about the meeting. You know, here's what we're going to cover. And, you know, one of those things is we'll talk about how we get compensated so that they're not uncomfortable having to ask it but i don't think anybody should ever be uncomfortable asking you know i think that's what thomas was thomas was asking is what questions can i ask that are not meant to be intimidating or disturbing but just things that i need to know and again i think that's you're right i think uh, the whole idea is people by nature want to know but they're afraid to ask and And that's uh, a great a great sign of a good advisor if you're out there looking, if these listeners are out there looking for advisors, I think a great sign of a good one is one who's answering some of these questions before they even have a chance to ask them. That's a great, a great point. Here's a question that I think that is so critical. And I, and it's it's, it's kind of like, um, I don't want to be the smallest client, but I don't want to be the largest client yeah. either. So I guess the question being is, what is your typical client? That's a that's a I question. think that's a great question. Yeah, because I mean, I don't want to be if I'm the I've got a million dollars and I come in. This guy says, "Well, the, you know, the, I've never done that much. I'm, right, right, I'm about yeah, thinking about money." Before, or, yeah. or I got I need budgeting and I need yeah. some counseling on just financial literacy. And this guy only works with million dollars. I can tell right then if he only works with million dollar clients, I'm not going to get a return phone call. Right. right so right. you want to know. What's the typical client? And, and yes, I think that's a great question to ask because of exactly what you just said. You want to make sure that your situation falls in into their wheelhouse and what they do on a regular basis and not that you're that rare client that comes along <laughs> to them and you're like, man, wow, never you seen know, this I, much money I'm before, 25 so. years old and I need your help. And, I, you know, how many people do? Well, all of my clients are 75 years old. That's yeah, not right, what you right. want. Well, and I think that the answer to that question goes even further than just how much, uh, you know, money are they going to invest or what their income level is. I think it goes into where are they 
from a demographic standpoint? What, right. what kind of job are they in? What kind of life stage are they in? So it's not just about uh, someone who has a million dollars or who has $10,000. It could be uh, somebody owns a small business. And so you understand, you work with a lot of small business owners and understand what's going on in my mind without me having to tell you what's going on in my mind. Tyler Springs is our producer. And the reality is I want Tyler to kind of Tyler, these questions from your chair, I mean, you're, you're listening to us and going through this process. Now, Tyler is a little younger than the two, three of us. You know, he's a little. His, I don't, just, what he, so he's he like, what, 33? And no, I'm like You're 35, 35 right? Yeah, yeah okay. okay, right. So Tyler, what do you think when you hear these questions we're talking about? Quite frankly, I, I feel like they're good in terms of them being wide ranging. Somebody like me, won't necessarily see the whole picture in terms of what I look for somebody who's advising me. Um, so I want somebody to be able to tell me, this is how we work. We see the whole picture uh, and we, we want to make sure that you see it as well. And that's, I think, what I look for the most is, is I value the comprehensive picture and, and the, the frankness, you know. Well, I think you bring up a great point, Tyler, is that that's one of the things that a good advisor can bring for someone in your situation who has, has perspective of, where you are today and we get you and understand what it's like to be a young business aspiring professional growing and where we have seen a bunch of you and we know how and someone and have an advisor that also has seen you 25 years from now too to know that if you want to go from where you are today I think that brings to what kind of ideal client is do you understand me do you know the things I need to be thinking about that I'm not thinking about. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, do you understand me from like what my interests are or what my values are, but do you understand the track record also of, of a typical young person who probably has switched jobs a couple of times at this point, you know, more than likely hasn't found a, a career job uh, and they may, you know, switch jobs in the future and, and they're not thinking about that, but you as a financial advisor, you can be like, eh, you might change jobs down the road. You never know, you know. That's right. Um, that's, I think, the most important thing is try to meet them wherever they are or, or at least thinking from their shoes. Uh, All right. Absolutely. That's the key right there. That what you what he just said, thinking from those shoes. And the reality is, and I'm going to put it into a word, how much experience do you have? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a real you know, and again, again a question that someone would ask, tell me about your experience and the reality is uh, that might that may be an intimidating question to a person that's only been in the business a year. That's right. I mean, you know, and yet that's important. All of us had to start at one time and then, but the experience that we've gained is taking that 30, 35 year old, 40 year old, working with them through their career changes and, and, and their direction and how their life has changed, their children and all those things, knowing that you have the experience. And, and I say this, when that question is asked, and the, you're talking to an advisor, and they said, well, I've only been in the business a year. The second thing that advisor should say, in my opinion, is yet, but I have a group of people behind me. A strong bench. Yep. The strong bench yeah. that has been with this industry for multiple years. That, that is exactly what I was going to point out. That experience can come from either that advisor themselves or the organization they work with and that, that collective experience of the organization that can stand behind that advisor. So it's important 
like you said, to ask who's on that team, who, who's helping you out. Are you just a solo guy out here on your own, been doing this for a year, or do you have an organization behind you with some experienced people that can help you put these plans and together? And the team actually expands far greater than just experience level. It also can expand into service level and yes. into being able to answer questions. And, you know, what happens if you're out of town and you're at the beach and I have an important, uh, important need, or what happens if this person gets sick or, or unfortunately dies while you're right in the middle of all of my, you know, my life goals and my, uh, you know, my nest egg, knowing that there are people there to kind of fill in the blanks and fill in the gaps to carry on is important. Right. And sometimes the messenger is somebody who's closer to the age of the person that is actually like the client or right, the, the potential clients. Like I, I live with a couple of guys uh, during college and then after college who got jobs um, with, you know, various financial firms. Um, and I listened to them talk about, they were kind of practicing their pitch on me in terms of saying, hey, let me let me just tell you about this company um, and tell you what we do. Because I know I'm not going to trust so-and-so who got a C in social studies, right? Because I said, <laughs> but, but that's, a, that's an obstacle if, to overcome. But sure. if he says, you know, if he says, hey, I know I don't know this, but I love what I'm doing right now. And I love the people that I work with. And if you don't, you don't like, you don't have to necessarily like, trust me, but if you're interested in what I'm saying to you and you want to hear it from people who are actually really experienced, let me connect you with Jim or Jason or Scott and, and, and put together just a, just a conversation, you know, uh, to see if this is the, if this is a good fit for you. This is a question we talked about who's your typical client, but now we're talking about Who's on your team? What kind of experience do you have? And how long you've been doing this? You know, and those are questions that are very easy to ask and you should ask. You should kind of know who you're talking with. And for some people, just the willingness to say, I may not have all the answers. Again, transparency. But I have access to people that have the experience and do have the answers. Absolutely. And you, I see in our office literally every week, someone who I, I believe that our listeners out there will respond way quicker to pro a professional maturity than they will tenure um, every day of the week for someone who is young and, and excited about what they do. Um, so if you're a listener out there and you're a little you know, older and you feel like, well, this young guy is not going to give them a shot because these guys are excited. Um, they're, if they're being professionally mature and they're saying and, and being transparent to say, Hey, I don't know, but I'm, I've got people who know, and I'm going to work my, you know, my tail off to make sure that they give you the best advice. People will respond to that much quicker than they will tenure. Wow, guys. Great. Any questions, any other comments? No, I, I will say this too, just at the, as, you know, as we kind of wrap up this, what do you ask a financial professional? All these questions are great um, and they're important to ask. But at the end of the day, um, most advisors are kind of fishing from the same pool when it comes to products and when it comes to services. But what really should be your deciding factor is that when you walk in, that this is someone that you see and you understand is worrying about the same things you're worrying about. Are my kids growing up? Are my bills being paid? Are my, you know, my parents, why aren't they talking to me about what the doctor just told them? And, you know, they're, they're having the same concerns and living the same life that, that they are. And there's an environment of comfort and there's an environment of uh, the, the freedom to just express who you are in that meeting and talk to this advisor and build a relationship. If they answer these questions, great and perfect, 
all the way through. They check all the boxes, but they don't check that box. That's not the advisor you need to see. You need to see the advisor that you can build a relationship with and grow up with them together and live life and do life with them together. I think I hear the word uh, that I didn't hear you say, but you went all the way around it and said everything. That I, I do was, that. My wife says I do that a lot. But well, I mean, no, no, it's perfect. It was perfect. Trust. 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 That's you the key. Got trust. To, you got to have the willingness or the ability to trust the person who's advising you when it comes to your money. Absolutely. Bottom line. Well, I want to turn the page, guys, because we don't have a lot of time left. I want to talk, Scott, just a little bit with all the volatility, and we're headed into summer. We're going to, you know, the debt crisis may be over, but the Ukrainian war is still there. We have all the things going on. We got China. We got AI. We're going to, you know, all this stuff going on. So how in the world do we manage through all these attitudes that we have, the, the the approaches that we go, the actions and everything that we do, how do we manage to get through all this without going crazy in our investments? That's a that's a great question, Jim. I think and that's I, a great think, question. Thank well, you, sir. Yeah, I appreciate well, you asked that. It, I worked you? hard on that it, question. Well, I think this goes back to, you know, we, we talked a lot about the questions to ask an advisor, but I think one of the questions that people ask themselves a lot is, can I truly profit from investment advice? And I think that one of the things that an investment advisor or a financial planner brings to the table is that ability to have a process, have a plan, have a disciplined investment process so that you don't get caught up in your emotions. That is one of the key things that an experienced guide or an experienced advisor brings to the table is that ability to control those emotions. Um, wow. I mean, that is so powerful. And the fact, when you say trust, you're trusting the guy trust who's him. helping control yep. your emotions. Well, I cannot believe the hour is gone. I mean, you guys have done a fabulous job. We didn't get into as much as I wanted to talk about when it comes to the investment world, but we'll come back and do that next week because I just want to, you know, we, it's a program that we like what we do and great to talk about it. I want to thank Scott and Jason for being here. And again, if you'd like to talk to these guys, 757-5757, area code 901. You can find the show, as I've told you, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. We so much appreciate it. And if you've got questions, you can type them to Jim, J-I-M, to the text line, 901-683-0989, or send them to Talk Money at ShoemakerFinancial.com. Next week, my guest, Scott, will come back. We will ask your questions, and we'll go through this whole idea of how to develop an investment plan. Daniel Irwin is here. He'll talk about scam school. we got to have that. Shannon Dyson is going to talk about employee benefits that help employers attract and retain talent. That's Saturday morning at 7 a.m. and Sunday again at 9 a.m. I want to thank our producer, Tyler Springs and Maximilian, guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner, production and marketing assistant, Lauren Doorsworthy, and our compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Thanks so much for listening. We're here for you each and every week, helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker, Jason Harrington, and Scott Jordan are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Helping you make the most of your money. This has been Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker on News Talk 98.9.